they saw these stories as being very culturally significant in their time and in their place. And that there's a time gap between when these stories were written and later compiled and when these stories were um, occurring, quote unquote, historically. Um, and I think me having that understanding of the way the Bible was functioning as a child actually helped shape the way I viewed the Bible as a whole moving forward. Because when I got to divinity school and um, all my fellow students were struggling with like textual criticism and, oh my gosh, this is really shaking my faith. I was like, yeah, I learned that when I was 10. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Byler, and we're trying to do something a little different here as of late. What I'm going to attempt to do now is me and Daniel will still record once a week, but the nature of the conversations will be such that the topics recorded during that time will be parallel, but they won't be exactly the same. So I'm going to try and split them up into two episodes so that hopefully we can get a get some shorter episodes in there for some of you that are new. It won't be as much of a cost in the beginning to get invested and in. hopefully it can make the, make us better at communicating and make me better at editing. Uh, but this week we are introducing a talk by Tim Mackey on the making of the Bible. We are going to talk about the old Testament in this episode. And then next week we will have the second half of the discussion me and Daniel had a few weeks ago, it was about the nature of translation and why it is a very important task, but it's also a very tricky task, as me and him have talked about briefly in episodes before. The episodes after that, we'll go on to talk about the New Testament canonization, and then we're going to talk about canons as such uh, after that one. So that's a preview of the couple weeks coming up here of what's going to get posted uh, as I've been moving and things of that nature. I have not been working a whole lot. I've not had as much time to dedicate to the podcast, to dedicate to the channel and be editing and, and things of that nature. But hopefully that'll get more consistent again. So expect the output at least once a week for these episodes. Um, as always, thank you guys very much for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you. Um, if you would like to, you can email me at belfastpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us at the Belfast Podcast on Instagram. You can follow me at Luke underscore Byler 816 on Instagram or Daniel. Just rate, review us on iTunes. If you have a minute, let us know what you think of the show. Um, it's always humbling and encouraging to, to hear from you guys. And we will see you in these upcoming episodes. Um, today, we're finally getting back on track after taking two weeks to talk about a bunch of other stuff that will happen soon. <clears throat> But as of late in the podcast, we've been talking about the Bible. We're talking about the Bible as art. We're talking about the purpose of the Bible in time and place as it pertains to understanding the Bible and then understanding literature at large and its time and place because essentially there's no other way to understand literature or even to understand ourselves for that matter. So we've been having those discussions 
We've recently pinned down discussions about inspiration, inerrancy, the role of the Holy Spirit in our interpretations of the Bible, which have been more Bible-centric as of late. And But still within that, we've stayed pretty high-level, 10,000-foot view of things going on. And today, we wanted to transition into a more pointed discussion about the formation of the Bible as a step from talking about the writing and authorship of the Bible. Because as Tim is going to say in the video we react to today, that it's it's kind of incorrect to think about the Bible as being written necessarily. Obviously, there were authors and people that wrote the words that end up in the Bible. But when we're when we're referring to the Bible as the at least in the Christian canon, the 60, the Protestant canon, the you know, 66 books. That's obviously not all one author. We know that. So it would be more accurate to say that the Bible was compiled or aggregated. And so we wanted, after having talked about how to think about those that wrote the Bible and how to place those writers in their setting and in their time, what then do we do with the canon is basically the question we're going to attack for the next couple of weeks. So hopefully that gives a good review of where we're at kind of what we've been up to. The main thrust of this, again, has all been looking at the Bible through a literary lens. And of course, there's a, a bunch of lenses, and I think that are all appropriate to view the Bible through. But as far as our mission goes, about helping people feel... So I, I, this is actually something I want to talk to you, talk to you about pre-show, which we can talk about this post-show if you want to. Yeah. I'll just bring it up now because I thought it was pretty relevant for at least what what we see ourselves doing. There's a great podcast um, that I started listening to because of uh, my buddy Jason. So Jason, shout out to you if you're listening. And it's called This Cultural Moment. It's from a pastor in in Portland and then one from Australia. And it's just trying to diagnose where we sit quite literally in time and place as people, as a culture, as Christians. And I was listening to, I think it was episode, episode two today. And they were talking about, no, it was episode three. And they were talking about how, strangely enough, and we'll get into this later this summer. One of the key things that's missing from the church is the spiritual disciplines. It used to be that you could kind of assume a certain, um, one of the pastors there uses the phrase uh, uh, Christian, or I would even be more specific with the term evangelical ghetto, which I think is a really interesting phrase. Hmm. But you could assume some kind of sheltered the wrong word, but more conservative orthodox leaning upbringing for most christians people that read their bible if not daily 
throughout the week, had some kind of devotional book, had some understanding of a, a prayer life for them, right? And he's like, now that might be true in some parts of the U.S., but by and large, as we become more secular, that kind of assumption that I can make as a pastor for people about where they're at and then how to send them into the culture is gone. I don't have that anymore. And one of the things he cited was that people, because of the questions of postmodernism, or you could say the end of modernity, or the, the rampant individualism that has become such a part of American culture, there's all these questions around the Bible, and it is no longer a sustenance for spiritual life. It is a thing to be distrusted or question more than um, more than what's the phrase I'm looking for more than be sustained by for lack of a better term. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So my, my point in bringing that up was that really got me thinking like, Oh yeah, that is definitely a reality even in my own life. And so I think at least part of maybe an underlying theme of what we've been trying to do in more of a subversive way is make the Bible more approachable. Yes. And not make it a source of fear for people to sit down and read, but in a different way than being your inspiration for the day. Cause I don't like those kinds of models of biblical reading, but make it so that it's to put it in Bama terms, make it something you can actually wrestle with and feel comfortable with that as comfortable as you can. But seeing that as value added and something worthwhile, then either something that's dangerous for your faith, a la the thing you posted on your story yesterday, <laughs> yeah, or something that should just be rejected. So with, with all of that, we've been trying to answer questions about how to look at the Bible, how to read it, how to approach literature at large, maybe some of the helpful ways, again, with Lewis, that he helps us sift through that, and especially in our modern, in, our, in this cultural moment. But how do we think about inspiration? And as I said the other day, the other week, how you think about inspiration is going to directly tie to how you think about how to apply it and how to read it. And then with that now, how are we to conceptualize and to understand what would be the making of the Bible so as to further our mission to help make the Bible more approachable is not even the right word less scary yeah okay so you mentioned something that i posted in my uh, instagram story yesterday so i'm just going to go ahead and read it i pulled it up um because i think this is actually a really good jumping off point um for the, the discussions we're going to have um so a christian 
Instagram I, page. Sorry, I almost texted you about this and was like, and was going to say something like maybe we should do a mini episode on this yeah, yeah. on this blog. I haven't read the blog. I should, but go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, I, I haven't read their whole thing, um, but it was a you know those those things pop up on Instagram and with the the white boxes with the text inside. There'll probably be some on the Bayline Instagram coming up. Just hint, hint. But yeah, nudge, nudge. But no, someone but, someone screenshotting their Twitter basically. Yeah, some someone was screenshotting their Twitter. Well, and it started with a post from a another, I'll let them remain unnamed, um, very prominent Christian group. Um, and they said, doubt is slander against the Almighty, obviously referring to God. Jesus died to save you from doubt, not to make space for it. And then they have a um, a link to, I guess, a blog post of theirs. Someone retweeted and, and said, um, no, it's not. Abraham doubted. Job doubted. Peter doubted. Martha doubted. Even Jesus cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which I actually disagree with the, the person responding in the sense that that is doubt. I think there's a lot more thing, more complicated things happening there, but that's for another time. Condemning people who are thoughtful about their faith, who doubt and who wrestle and who cry out with questions is legalism from the pit of hell. And one of the things that I hope this episode does of Belfast is give us a concrete understanding of what the Bible is. And I don't just mean what the Bible is there to do why the Bible exists. I'm talking concretely, like what, what is the Bible? What makes up the Bible? Why is it the way that it is? And how does the Bible testify about its own existence? Mm -hmm. Because I could probably walk into church, any church on a given Sunday and spit some of these facts out. And it would really, really mess with a lot of Christians' faith. And I think that's a shame for two reasons. One, it means they're ignorant of the thing that they're placing their, or one of the things in which they're placing their faith in to a dangerous degree, right? Because you want to talk about, oh, all the young kids are going off to college now and they're losing their faith. Well, yeah, it's because you've done a crappy job of educating them on stuff like this. And when a college mm -hmm. professor who's an atheist and a pessimist about the Bible tells them these facts in a very pessimistic way, that's the natural conclusion, right? Mm -hmm. If you, in a controlled environment, and when I was a youth pastor, this is what I tried to do, in a controlled environment, introduce facts like this to young Christians and say, hey, this is, this is the reality of what the Bible is. And as we'll see Mackie does, present this as the truth, because it is, but also in a non-threatening way and explain why it's not threatening. Um, that I think is the, the crucial and fundamental piece that we miss a lot of times in Christian education, mm -hmm. uh, which is one of the reasons why I think this episode is so crucial um, is because it serves as the bridge point between 
what we've been doing and talking about interpreting literature in general, and then getting into examples of how to interpret the Bible and ways in which that works. Is because if we don't understand what the Bible is, it's very easy to erode the foundation that we're standing on. Mm-hmm. And I don't want that, right? We're not here to be the young hip guys deconstructing endlessly, right? We're here to help people understand at a ground level what's going on mm-hmm. and how that impacts the way we view things. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know if you have any comments on that. Um, not necessarily. I, I think the only thing I'd want to say, I, I agree with everything you said, and I think that was very good. Um, yeah, I, I'll pretty much leave that there and just say that this, this kind of thing is... is what I'll say seeing how this reality that we're going to investigate gets misunderstood by non-Christians and by Christians is one of the things that keeps me up at night Mm -hmm. and is one of the reasons I do this Um, because I, well, I think there's other more pernicious things going on or reasons why people are leaving the church or losing faith. I hate seeing things get misused and then people leave or reject Christianity for unfounded and not well thought out reasons yeah and i think this the what we've been talking about which is why i've tried to push and go as deep as we can at the moment this thinking that and this funny enough we don't have to go on this tangent but this thinking on either side of the spectrum, conservative or liberal, even in terms of scholarship or let's say um, traditionally, and I'll use that, tr- that term for both camps, that the Bible is at some level completely transferable to my world is just incorrect. We'll see examples of how that is totally wrong in like a week. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, time, we can't get it. You, you literally cannot escape it. Time and place. And it is, I mean, look at the, one of the newest lectures Peterson published on yeah. the Bible and perception. You know, you, we can't escape it. 
you sorry i i'm not gonna i'm gonna resist going on another tangent about um things that vehemently make me not a dualist and not and someone that even um and someone that even really questions uh a human a way that humanity can exist without a body i'm really starting to think it's not possible hmm. to be considered human and be disembodied i i think categorically it's impossible and i think a lot of that at least theologically it has to do with something about faith and trust and finitude now you can question well what does it mean when we're no longer finite i don't know but apparently new bodies and resurrection bodies are a big deal in the bible so something about embodiment according to paul especially in first corinthians 15 is really important and it sticks around even when it doesn't have to this is maybe another discussion for another day, but Peterson's a newest lecture on you should have read the Bible or you probably should have read the Bible at uh, FSU. The problem of perception, like it was, it was my um, postmodernism paper pretty much like yeah, quite a lot of that was that. in there, but anyway, that's a whole nother thing. Yeah. Well, I point think being, point being that you're in a body in a time and place unless you die but then you're another something in another place how we again how we deal with time there's a different discussion but you literally outside of death you can't escape it so let's just accept it as a reality because it is and know that if our own perception is situated in time and place why would that not be the case with all the other forms of us trying to communicate our perceptions ever yeah and then going back to the conversation about divine accommodation and then back to my previous thought about humanity I think then that that becomes essential to understanding God's communication to human beings. I agree. Okay. Um, and you can and, pick my brain more about yeah, that well, later, embodiment. I but we'll, I, I, we'll have to come back to embodiment and dualism and all of that. And I think that'll have to be a whole other conversation that we do. Yeah. Um, because I have a lot of thoughts on that that I think still need refining. Um, I, I have a lot of deep intuitions based on other beliefs and how that informs or that is informed by those other beliefs. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It's also why I'm anti-abortion by the way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that, um, just to throw that out there, it has many, many implications. You heterosexual white male patriarchal supporting anti-abortion or <laughs> I, I guess I'm, I'm just I, evil to the core. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I, I guess I'm right there with you. I mean, look at my skin. Um, we, we can see that on the skin, right? Is 
we're all defined by the, the shade of our, no? Is that not how that works? I, I don't know anymore. Our culture is telling me so many different things. Anyway, I'm going to stop being satirical <laughs> and a bit of a jerk. Um, uh, yeah. And I guess I'll give us the, um, <laughs> the, the rundown for today. Yeah. Um, so we're going to start with something that um, you and I have run through and mentioned quite a bit before, and that is Mackie's example of the MC Escher's drawing hands. Mm-hmm. We're going to start there, and then we're going to move into um, how the Bible was not written but made. Mm-hmm. We're going to see an example of this in Torah. We're going to see an example of this in the prophets. And then we're going to see how there are literary scenes that um, give testimony to post-writing, editing, and compilation of the Old Testament as a whole. Today is going to specifically focus on the Old Testament. Then we're going to look at the foundation of the Old Testament canon. And then we'll kind of wrap things up with uh, manuscript history of the Old Testament, which I think is a really crucial thing for people to understand, because it's that point right there where a lot of Christians can get hung up um, by um, the golden tablets from heaven view, the, um, the Dan Brown men in a secret room conspiring to control the world perspective, and the yeah and the perspective um that like if you're take the perspective of bart ehrman for example um that it's myth and um corrupted memory and things like that and even a even his definition of myth i would highly debate yeah but i agree i agree so that's where we're going to start um, so I guess we can oh, go ahead. Um, uh, one last note. If you yeah. saw, it's one of my more popular videos, uh, thinking about the Bible with Interite Tim Mackey and Andy Stanley, I reference a different version of the same talk in that video. Yeah. There's clips of that in there. It's Tim Mackey's making of the Bible lecture. There's two prominent ones on YouTube that I'm aware of. If there's more, let me know. Um, yeah. Put, drop a comment or a link um, or email it to me. Um, but yeah, so there's two prominent ones I'm aware of. We're watching one of those, the f- a little bit shorter one. Um, yeah, so that overview of that is what Daniel just gave. So let's get started, I guess. Yeah, so we'll be covering half the video today, the half on the Old Testament, um, and not the whole thing by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I will say I have primarily watched the other version that um, Luke referenced. And I think that that version, it includes more details and more facts. I like it for that reason, but for our purposes today, this being more concise was more useful. Um, So I would recommend check out both versions and see how Mackie presents the information in both situations. They're long, but they're worth watching and listening to and they're worth watching and listening to multiple times Uh, yeah so and he has a split up version of this in the podcast explore my strange bible too yeah that was a very good one as well um it's i think it's split into three parts there Mm -hmm. 
if I remember correctly. But anyway, with that being said, let's go ahead and dive on in. Is that popping up correctly? Yep, gotcha. All right. An uh, honest reading of the making of the Bible, that's con the, the story is contained within the scriptures itself, uh, but also evidence the public accessible history of the Bible throughout the historical record tells a different story. And so that's the big picture that I hope you walk away with tonight. And that's what's going to link together all of the historical facts. How you guys doing? Okay, fire hose, fire hose on. <laughs> um, okay, so I, uh, if you were at uh, the Sunday gatherings uh, at Reality uh, Church San Francisco yesterday, I, I put this image up here by M.C. Escher. Um, and uh, I don't know if you're an Escher fan, I think he's brilliant. Um, but he, uh, this image uh, for me has become such a helpful, helpful illustration of the historical, both Jewish and Christian confession about what the Bible is. Um, this, so this is a, it's called Drawing Hands and it's exploring the, the, the paradoxical truth of complex entities of things that are one yet two, of things that are distinct, two distinct things, yet they exist as one. So which hand is drawing the other? Yes, exactly. So, so to me, this is it's just perfect because the Jewish Christian confession throughout history has been about the Bible that it is a divine and a human word at the same time. Um, and again, if, if you were here at the Sunday gathering at Reality, you heard me, but repetition will help you, right, with this one. So that it's a divine and a human word, and that neither one cancels out the other or trumps the other. They both exist fully, simultaneously true at the same time. And the, the dominant narrative that I just laid out for you, one would be, you know, the common Christian narrative, which erases the human hand for the most part, and treats the Bible as, uh, I call it the golden tablets falling from heaven view. So the biblical authors, of course, you know, people wrote it, but for the most part, they're incidental. And, you know, God's presence or spirit zapped them in an ecstatic trance, and they're, you know, doing that whole thing as they write out the books. And so that's a very common, a common story. It's usually wrapped up with a view of what the Bible is for, namely that it's a divine rule book, um, that gives you the instructions for how to be the kind of person who makes it to the good place and not the bad place after you die. So that story of where the Bible came from and what it's for is very dominant in American Christian culture. Then you have the view that erases the divine hand and says it's merely uh, a human book written by people. It's a very important cultural artifact. You know, this book's very influential. It shaped the course of many human civilizations, and so it's very important that you should know about it. And we might even say that it's a witness to how people in the ancient world experience the reality of God. Um, but, it's a, but it's merely a, a human word, and we shouldn't uh, take it that seriously. So the, and so that story is out there, too. And so... Uh, Again, my case is that I, I think it's reasonable. I'm not going to persuade anybody who isn't open-minded already on either side. But I think a reasonable reading of what the Bible is trying to tell us about its own origins tells a different, a different story. So here's, um, and again, if you, I say this is the third time. I'm going to summarize really quickly what I said at the reality uh, gathering uh, yesterday on this. All right. So that right there 
is the thesis, right? Divine and human. Divine and human. Two hands. And erasing one does a massive amount of damage to the way we look at what is actually in front of us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> he talks about the different theories, right? And before we played that clip, I referenced a few more pessimistic theories about that. But I mean, this is the language that we've been using for several weeks, right? Golden tablets fallen from heaven, um, this sacred, untouchable thing that never changes, never has changed, never will change. Eternal word, right? What's funny is I think- Infallible. Infallible. and in some ways it might be, but I don't think it is in the way that we use that word. Uh, right. And this is just to go on that for a second, because I don't, I didn't say this in the episode where we talked about inerrancy, but I think it's worth saying, and this is something, this isn't my phrase. This is John's phrase. It's the wrong word. It yeah. be, it's the wrong word because it doesn't mean what you want it to mean. At, at the end of the day, the people who hammer on inerrancy the most, while, while they might use phrases like the perfect word of God, I would ask them, what do you mean by perfect? Because um, God didn't even call his creation perfect. He called it good, by the way. But Aside from that, they're so that's what they would say by and large. I think for the most part, what they're trying to defend is is by defending inerrancy, they also subsequently defend authority. Because if it's if it doesn't contain error, therefore it is better than me, and I would, the Bible is better than me, whatever that means. Um, but therefore, then it has authority over my life. Okay. If that's what you, and I'm just saying this a little bit pejoratively, but I think it holds. If that's what you really mean, the Bible's authoritative, then just use that word. They build a fence around the law. Where have we heard that phrase before? And I'm actually for, to a degree, building fences, right? And I think Jesus was too. Um, We might get into this when we talk about ritual versus moral purity. Mm -hmm. But what you have to be careful of, and I think this is what Jesus points us to in the Gospels, is not letting the fence become God not letting the fence become law, Mm -hmm. right? And so in order to protect authority, we build the the fence of inspiration, infallibility, inerrancy, all of these N words, I N. Mm -hmm. And we don't, we do it for a purpose, but then we let building those fences distract us from the purpose 
Mm -hmm. And again, when we erase, at least, I mean, we're talking predominantly to the crowd, presumably, that would erase the human hand, right? And say, God, you know, mind controls, puppet masters, the mm -hmm. writers, and they scribble out the words as they're supposed to be said. And then, you know, thus we have the Bible. Um, I, on the one hand, I think, you know, that's a, a bit of an unrealistic expectation. And at the same time, I also think that, that kind of demeans God's ability to use natural things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a problem too. Right. Because in this mindset, this framework, we're putting the Bible in a box and we're putting God in a box at the same time. Mm -hmm. This is something that Tim has said elsewhere. I think, I think it's, it's worth really thinking about just in terms of our, our let's say, evangelical conceptions. I'll, I'll confine it that way. But he talks about how we think about God's action as a being divine, or let's say actions being divine or not. And most of the time, we consider something that happens being inspired or divine if there's little to no human activity, right? If God zaps my grandmother or my uncle and heals them without medical intervention, wow, that was a divine intercession, divine healing. That was so amazing. Praise God for it. I think it's great. Whereas we wouldn't talk the same way about the CT scan or the uh, appendectomy or open heart surgery. We just don't. Well, yeah. what does that tell us? Yeah. Oh, well, something's divine. God inspired. God really had his hand in this situation because definitionally a miracle happened. Meaning that direct human involvement wasn't present. Well, okay. So the writing of the Bible is inspired and divine because humans weren't really involved. I mean, sure, someone had to hold the pen, but really how much did they know of what they were writing? Apparently a lot. But Tim's point is that this is an awful dichotomy to draw because from, <laughs> from page two of the Bible... You have God working through human beings. That's 
his ultimate desire, it seems, or one of them. So to say that something's only divine or there's only divine intervention when humans aren't involved is to diminish is in some sense it's anti-human to be honest with you um i'll give a i'll try and make this very quick just to show how subtle these things can be and it's one of those beautiful things that when you look back on even from you know a few years past when you look back on it you think wow that was that seemed really small but that was actually a big deal so i had a friend who goes he still goes to my church when i first started attending center he owned a painting business he did commercial and private painting jobs and i needed a job for you know, a little bit, he'd hire college kids who could help him every few days or so for a few hours. And it was painting work. We'd tape the floors and cover them and do all the siding. And then I, I spent two days uh, scraping, um, scraping the popcorn ceiling in this house. That was kind of fun. Um, you know, all the things you'd associate with that. And then I ended up leaving. I ended up moving back to Kansas City but a couple of months after he'd hired me. And it would give me, you know, maybe $100, $150 a week. It, was, it wasn't a lot, but it was money. And it was a job. It was something to be involved in. And it was great because he went to my church. I got to know him a lot. Um, and then I remember... I'd finally started attending center on a regular basis and really enjoying it. And it was a Friday afternoon. And I don't, this didn't hit me. It hit me at the moment, but the real gravity of what happened didn't hit me till much later. Where it's Friday afternoon, the clouds are starting to roll in, it's starting to rain a little bit. We're outside on the porch, cleaning up all the equipment from the day. He's telling me stories about him not finishing high school, getting his GED, um, starting Center Church, being involved with Jeremy in the beginning, all this stuff. We finished packing up. We put everything in the trailer, and he looks at me, and he goes, all right, so I'll see you on Sunday. And I said, yeah, man, I'll see you on Sunday. I'll be in town. I went home, and I sat in my room, and I cried. Because I hadn't felt like I had lived in Springfield. I was going home every weekend to visit my girlfriend at the time. And leave Friday afternoon, come back Sunday night. Was really only there for school. Was doing homework outside of that. So I finally had gotten a job, something else to do in the city, outside of school, outside of traveling. Started to go to this church, so it made me want to stay on the weekends more. I really like the people there. I love Jeremy, all this stuff. For Brad Cook, he just hired another high school, another college kid to help him paint. No big deal. Do it all the time. Hey, keep track of your hours. Let me know at the end of the week. I'll cut you a check. Oh, yeah. So you're going to be there on Sunday. Awesome. 
Brad Cook didn't know. It wasn't a big deal. It was what it was. But at the mo at that moment, I knew that this happened for a reason. To use a cliched phrase. But I think that's the case of many testimonies, right? Someone did something, and maybe it was something that they didn't think much of that was just part of what they did. And it had a profound impact on somebody. Well, that's God at work, is it not? We all testify like it is. We all tell testimonies as if that's the reality. So, but then when we talk about things being divine or being inspired, how is that any different than Luke 4 texting me and saying, hey, Brad Cook needs some help. Do you want to work part-time? Is God not involved in that? And if he's not, then all of our stories are really just self-aggrandizing and false attribution. My only point is we have to be consistent. And where the inconsistencies lies is interesting to me. Yeah. So one quick example and then another quick example, um, and then we can keep going. Um, I was having a conversation with someone at uh, the, this previous Super Bowl, went to a Super Bowl watch party at my church. And as normally happens with me, the conversation tends to center somewhere around the Bible at some point, right? Especially among Christian community. And I started talking to this guy about concepts of inspiration, infallibility, what is and isn't scripture. Um, and... <clears throat> Of course, this is a Presbyterian church that I'm currently going to, and I come from a Pentecostal background, so that made getting off, getting some of the groundwork a bit more difficult. Um, but I, I said to this guy, um, you know, I felt like I've heard, oh, oh, no, no, no. I said, is everything that God has ever spoken to someone considered scripture, considered authoritative? And he mm -hmm. was like, his initial answer was yes. And I said, well, what if, what if you felt God speaking to you? Is that scripture for someone else? Or is that a word specifically for you? And that kind of threw a wrench into his system for a variety of reasons. Um, and, but, he, but he kind of stopped. And um, I could see he was like, oh, I see what you mean. I mean, I remember reading in high school C.S. Lewis and thinking, this is inspired. Not mm -hmm. thinking it's scripture. But thinking it's definite, God's doing something in this, mm -hmm. right? So those designations are different, right? And I've talked about it, I think, in uh, two episodes ago about God speaking to me and speaking through me to people. I don't consider that scripture. I consider it inspired. And there was also a naturalistic part of that, too, because as I was becoming more like God, God had to supernaturally speak to me less mm -hmm. right um so to your your miracle point uh, my pastor from back home um he had and i feel bad now i can't remember what what kind but he had a kind of cancer 
um, a number of years back. Um, and they found it because he had another far more mild yet significantly painful medical um, problem, medical issue. And so he was getting checked out for that issue and they found the cancer um, very, very early. And had they not, it probably would have gone a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, but they found it so early that they were able to do enough that he's um, healthy, not on dialysis, um, and doing wonderfully medically. Uh, in fact, I think a f- few weeks ago, he posted it had been like three or four years and he's um, still in remission, mm-hmm. which is amazing. And he talks about it as though it was a miracle. They mm-hmm. found it because of another medical problem and they found it through natural means. But he firmly, and I would agree with him, believes that he, that other thorn in the flesh, that other, to, to, to use a biblical term, that other medical issue was used by God to reveal a greater issue that could have taken his life. Mm-hmm. That's completely natural and at the same time, miraculous, divinely ordained, right? At least that's the way that he talks about it, the way that our church community talks about it. Um, and so I think that, yeah, to bifurcate these things, to be so dualistic, in them is kind of a a problem. Yeah. And we all, to these points, we all talk about in our testimonies, how God uses other people to do things for us or speaks to us through them, or they provide for us, maybe monetarily, maybe with food, generosity, hospitality, prayer, all these things. So God uses people to do things in our lives. And in the same way, I would just argue, yeah, and God uses people to write the Bible and to compile the Bible. Yeah. What? (laughs) Again, I, I guess my only understanding for the desire to say that the Bible is somehow different than those God doing those things is, again, to protect authority. as I would continue to argue, that's really what you mean. And I think you can still have authority without having strict inerrancy. Yeah. yeah. All right. I will um, get the next clip pulled up. Is that coming through? Yeah. So we're jumping ahead a little bit. Yeah. So um, at this point, we should be talking about in the talk, this would be his second example, but I think this example has a bit more usefulness for our purposes today. The first example is a really good one too. Of okay, example of the what? ways the Bible was written, the way the Old Testament, the Bible testifies to its own writing, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, yeah. Old political theologians who want to dupe the masses, you know, and create this collection of books that is a political ideological power play over everybody else, then the Bible is a very, very strange document, if that's how it came into existence. Uh, Because the Bible is 
has loads of very public information about how it came into existence, and it is definitely not, definitely not that. So, for example, uh, the white section, the Torah, um, it, we're told multiple times. We looked at two examples. How did the Torah come into existence? Well, who do we at least know played a role at the beginning of its formation? Moses, right? And so, um, but here's what's interesting, is that if you are reading in different parts of the Torah, you'll come across different things. Oh, I guess a good one. In the book of Genesis, right? Which is recounting events from before Moses even came into existence. And you'll, you'll get to a genealogy, which is great bedtime reading, you know, <laughs> if, you're, uh, if you're feeling sleepy in, in Genesis 36. And the genealogy begins, yeah, this is the genealogy of the generations of Esau, Jacob's brother. Now, this genealogy records uh, the generations of Esau from before when there were any kings in Israel. You're like, wait a minute. Like, the kings in Israel didn't come, like, for centuries after Moses came into existence. Do you see this here? So the, the Pentateuch itself points to the fact that it came into existence in different stages. It had its own formation history. Moses is at the fountainhead, and there's a succession of authors after him. And these authors drew on lots of different historical sources as they compiled uh, this epic narrative of the Torah and, and the prophets. And they don't even hide the fact that they're, telling, that they're drawing this from different sources. They tell you it quite a few times, actually, right there. So you'll be reading a story in Numbers, and the Israelites are going through the wilderness, and they're going into this region. They find a well there. And then there's a little poem that says, you know, they found this well there. Oh, yeah, sorry, I got all this from the scroll of the wars of the Lord, right? You're reading a story in Joshua about this battle. They went in here. Oh, yeah, dear reader, I got all this from the scroll of Yashar and so on. This has happened dozens of times as you're reading through the story. So the, the, the book itself gives full evidence of how it came into existence and that it came into existence in stages. You know, think of like a, like a book that would be like a, a history of a people group and there's 10 different historians working on it, each on different sections. It goes through multiple editions, revised and updated, you know. That's, there you go. The Bible's telling us that's how uh, these first books came into existence. Now, what are these sources? And what, what should we envision the biblical authors doing? Okay, two nerdy facts. I haven't shown you any ancient tablets yet. Okay, so his examples there that he goes into are really, really cool, really, really good. And I can briefly Brief. summarize them later. Um, but let's first talk about what he just what he just said. So he talks about several examples of um, compiling different things. One of his best examples was a scholar. I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but he was in charge of taking a bunch of ancient manuscripts that we found all in one solitary place and basically puzzle piece fitting them together to figure out what torn piece of a page went with another torn piece of a page that are thousands of years old. And then compiling those into, um, into a work that we can translate and loosely understand. And so I think that example is really good because it shows how the Bible was compiled, right? You have this one thing that is um, taken and another thing that is taken documents and they're put together 
to paint a broader picture. They're used to display something that them together wouldn't have been able to display. And this taking of them together, sometimes merging together very, um, very intimately produces what we call the Bible. Um, one, another example of how this works and how the book of Genesis very obviously its final edition is much later than Moses because it talks about how there will be a standing stone that is still there to this day. And you think, okay, well, Moses didn't, never made it to the promised land. He never could have known that this standing stone in the land of Israel was still there unless God somehow told him that. Why would that be relevant unless this is being compiled or written by someone who's in the land? Um, and I remember reading that. My father read that to me as a kid, and I had that realization as a child. He, he highlighted that to me. He was like, hey, you know, this obviously had to have been written at a later time than the story itself is like not portraying that it's being written, but that the story itself is describing a much later time because it would make no sense to say, oh, that stone we put up yesterday, it's still there today. Well, duh, that stone that was put there by the patriarchs hundreds of years ago, that's still there today. That means something, right? And it shows that they saw these stories as being very culturally significant in their time and in their place. And that there's a time gap between when these stories were written and later compiled and when these stories were um, occurring, quote unquote, historically. Um, and I think me having that understanding of the way the Bible was functioning as a child actually helped shape the way I viewed the Bible as a whole moving forward. Because when I got to divinity school and um, all my fellow students were struggling with like textual criticism and, oh my gosh, this is really shaking my faith. I was like, yeah, I learned that when I was 10, at least not, not to the degree that I do now. Right. Mm -hmm. But in a Bible study in my home, when my father and mother were reading this Bible, the Bible to me, very plainly, we just sat down and read a chapter. And a week later, we'd sit down and read another chapter. Mm -hmm. I could read the book itself. It wasn't any theology being imposed upon it. It was just reading the Bible and seeing what it showed you. Mm -hmm. And we don't really have that approach, I don't think, in the church as much as we should. Mm -hmm. And when we do read the Bible, oftentimes our reading of it isn't through the lens of the time and place when it was originally written or the people that it was originally written to. It's usually through the lens of hundreds and thousands of years of biblical theology that has semantically overloaded our ability to interpret it properly. Mm -hmm. So. I read from something that I've mentioned a lot on this podcast and I'll read, uh, I'll read a little bit. 
but talking about it telling us how it was written. I think this is an interesting example or why it was written. Chapter one. In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my head ever since. Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, he told me, just remember that all the people in the world haven't had the advantages you've had. He didn't say any more, but we've always been unusually communicative in a reserved way, and I understood that he meant a great deal more than that. In consequence, I'm inclined to reserve all judgments, a habit that has opened many, opened up many curious natures to me and also made me the victim of not a few veteran bores. The abnormal mind is quick to detect and attach itself to the quality which it appears, which when it appears in a normal person. And so it came about that in college, I was unjustly accused of being a politician because I was privy to the secret, secret grieves of wild unknown men. Most of the confidences were unsought. Frequently I have feigned sleep, preoccupation or hostile, hostile levity when I realized by some unmistakable sign that an intimate revelation was quickening on the horizon. For the intimate revelations of young men, or at least the terms in which they express them, are usually plagiaristic and marred by ob obvious suppressions. Reserving judgments is a matter of infinite hope. I am still a little afraid of missing something. I forgot that, as my father snobbishly suggested and I snobbishly repeated, a sense of the fundamental decencies is parsed out unequally at birth. And after boasting this way of my tolerance, I came to the admission that it has a, li a limit. Conduct may be found on the hard rock or the wet marshes, but after a certain point, I don't care what it's, what it's founded on. When I came back from the East last autumn, I felt that I wanted the world to be in uniform and had a sort of moral attention forever. I wanted no more rigorous excursions with privileged glimpses into the human heart. Only Gatsby, the man who gives his name to this book, was exempt from my reaction. Gatsby, who represented everything from which I have an unaffected scorn. If personality is an unbroken series of successful gestures, then there was something gorgeous about him, something heightened, some heightened sensitivity to the promises of life, as if he were related to one of those in intricate machines that register earthquake 10,000 miles away. The responsiveness had nothing to do with that flabby impressionability, which I dignified under the name of the creative temperament. It was an extraordinary gift of hope, a romantic readiness such as I've never found in any other person, and which is not likely I shall ever find again. No, Gatsby turned out all right in the end. It is what preyed on Gatsby, what foul dust floated in the wake of his dream that temporarily closed out my interest in the, uh, in the abortive sorrows and short-winded elations of men. So what is The Great Gatsby? It's Nick Carraway's memoir of living in New York. But that's told to us fairly plainly in his, and again, there's a lot of debate about is he a reliable narrator, is he not? Well, obviously he holds hostility towards everyone he met except Gatsby, right? What's his quote at the end right before 
Tom Buchanan comes back. You're worth the whole damn bunch of them. But it's, again, it's quite clear. So we know that from the outset, that this is a memoir. It's from his perspective. It's him telling about what happened, trying to be, I think the, that those first two pages are funny because he starts out with something his father told him about reserving judgment. And then next page, oh, he's judged all of them already, except Gatsby. And here's the story of why. So. Yeah, fascinating. I'll have to do some more thinking on that, honestly. Fitzgerald's also just such a good writer. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, that I just think that's another, like, as I like to do, pull a contemporary example in yeah. of how, again, how we see this reality work in every other realm, mm -hmm. but somehow, yeah, you know, okay, so we do that when we read this thing. So keep that same energy when you yeah. approach the Bible. Exactly. Exactly. Anything else before we? Uh, That's okay. it. Okay. So this will be um, an example from the prophets of the way literature is written, the biblical literature specifically. Oh, I had one more, one okay. more thing. Um, when Tim was talking about oh, I got this from this scroll, and I got this from this scroll, right? It's obviously telling of a later formation of what you're reading, but it also gives historical credence mm -hmm. to a tradition, at least, that existed that is being attested to. Yeah. It's, saying, it's exactly what Frank Herbert does in Dune with all his qu quotes in the beginning of every chapter from some book as you find out at the end of Dune Messiah, Princess Erlon dedicates herself to preserving the history of Paul Atreides, which is what you've been reading at the beginning of every chapter and what you continue to read at the beginning of every chapter in every book. But that also gives you, as I've said before, the sense that, oh, so what I'm reading is history. Just like, oh, what I'm reading is, is Nick Carraway's story about his why he hates all these people who live in New York. So the same thing with the Bible. Yeah. Oh, they, what I'm reading is a perspective interpretation, a culmination, a shortening, an expansion of this thing that happened over here. And we know this because we know about how different stories get told the same and different ways, not just in the Gospels, but in the Old Testament, Kings, Chronicles, Samuel, Prophets, all this stuff, telling and retelling the same stories for different reasons. Well, I think one example that um, I want to say it's Tim Mackey, but it could be somebody else. Um, uses of this is when you tell the story or so I guess for, for me um, the example would be how uh, my wife and I met mm -hmm. right there are a lot of details we could include 
but in almost two years of marriage, we've gotten to the point where, and three years of dating before that, we've gotten to the point where there's an official canonized story, right? Yeah. We, when people ask that question, we go through the same beats every single time because we've told the story so many times that it, there's an efficient way of getting mm -hmm. the relevant, enjoyable, fun, funny information into the retelling and excluding yeah. a lot of the boring things or maybe some of the more personal thing, you right. know, things like that. And we, and you find this even with close friends, or I'm yeah. sure you've even found this with your wife, right? You get to know somebody, you hear roughly through conversation, a lot of the big beats of their life and some of their story and why they're at where they're at. And then you might find out five years later, they tell some odd offbeat story about something that happened. And you're like, oh, I never knew that. That's kind of strange. That's really weird. That sheds a little bit more light on why you act this way or why you do this thing or why you've said that all the time. Okay, well, were they dishonest with you before? Were they not telling the truth? No, they just happened to exclude something because they didn't see it as relevant to whatever the conversation was or whatever the question you asked. It's not that they're trying to be deceitful. It's the same. It's like you said, there's a canonized version of, of your relationship with Bethany. Yeah. Even in the story I told 10, 20 minutes ago about Brad, there's a, I've told that story five or six times. There is a canonized version of the story with Brad. And there's other details I can add that are, completely unnecessary to the point I'm making. So they are irrelevant to the truth I am, I am conveying in, in the telling of that tale. Same thing about our questions we have that are well worth asking about why certain things are included in certain sections of the Bible in the retelling of stories that aren't in other places. And my short answer would be the things are excluded because they're Ill irrelevant to the point that's trying to be made. Exactly. Um, in fact, your example of someone telling a story and you're like, oh, I didn't realize that that happened. I, can't, I don't even remember what, but that happened with Bethany and I a few days ago. She either mentioned to me or maybe we were in conversation with somebody else and she mentioned something that she did or happened in high school or maybe before that. And I was like, I didn't know that about you. That's wow. That kind of it didn't like fundamentally change the way I view my wife. Yeah. Right. But it was like, that's interesting. Right. I didn't know that. And I, I wasn't mad or anything, but I was like, that would have been fun to know sooner. Like it was yeah. kind of one of those like, huh? Yeah. And generally cool. with those kind of instances, your thought is, well, I would think that would be a big deal for you. Like, why wouldn't you share that with me? Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I wasn't upset or anything. It wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> like ground breaking earth shattering or anything like that but i remember thinking like hmm like that would have that probably could have led to some funny conversations mm -hmm. um again i don't even remember what it was at this point so that shows you how fundamentally important that moment was to me but i remember that happening and thinking huh that's strange that's interesting that's something i didn't know mm -hmm. um, and when you've been dating slash married for as long as we have you start to run out of new facts about yeah. the person's history and so whenever you pick up a new one it's kind of a well an interesting okay. moment right let me see because and i'm sure if you're married have children and you're listening to this 
you'll probably laugh and find this relevant. Because as, as you grow, as an, I would imagine as adult, as a parent, as you see your child go through different stages, it brings out different aspects of you and different memories of things that happened to you when you were their age. King famously talks about the reason his characters as kids and his earlier works were always small children was because he would say, well, I live with them. I have kids. So if I'm going to write a child, I'm going to write a child that is roughly the same age as my children because I understand them. It's easy for me to write. It's a, there's a direct parallel. Same thing I would imagine with parenting. And there'd be, I remember some distinct instances, not again, not the specific story. So that again shows you how unimportant this was to the foundational view I have of my mom or dad. But as I would go through certain relational things in life, my dad would share a story about something and he's more private, at least in an outspoken sense about say his romantic past. I think because he just literally had less of it than my mom, not to speak down on him, but just that's the feel I get, right? My mom was engaged before she met my dad and she has some funny stories around that, but she's just more open about it generally than my dad is. And so as I would explain to them something that was going on in my life, my dad would share a story. And I remember more than once, my mom would go, you know what, Mark, I didn't know that. That's really that happened. And he'd be like, yeah, da, 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 whatever. Or grandma would tell a story about dad and, or, and then my his sister would say, oh yeah. And then mom would be like, oh, I never, I never heard that before. So, and again, because you as a person, me as a person, this is also what makes me sick about the current ways in which we just wholesale seem to judge people based on like three factors, but there's so many things that go into why you are the way you are or why you do what you do or why you think the way you do that unraveling all of that to one person, even just one person literally takes as long as you're going to be alive or longer. There's always going to be things you don't know because there's always other things to explore. And so I guess to say, I'm sure, Daniel, you'll find in 10 years, Bethany's going to tell some story and you're going to have that same reaction. You'll be like, wow, I thought that I you know, knew everything about you after seven years, but that story, that was different. I didn't know that. Yeah. You know, well, I'm sure it's going to happen in the reverse. And I know it has happened in the reverse. I've told a story or mentioned, made a comment about something and she's been like, oh, tell me more about that. And I'm like, I didn't tell you that before. Mm -hmm. I, I could have sworn I did. Mm -hmm. Um and and then i'll tell the story and she's like oh that's that's really cool or you know and you know, we have a conversation about it and it's, it's just funny right because you expect i mean in um in that I, there have been several times where i honestly didn't realize that i hadn't told her something mm -hmm. like i actually assumed that i had which is why i hadn't brought it up so because i thought I, and again it's not something significant um but you know, it's just something that happens. So 
anyway, I guess that's a bit more of a relational example of what we're talking about and why the Bible is operating the way it is and how it's compiled and um, why this compilation and viewing it as a compilation as opposed to someone just sitting down and writing and uh, is a big deal. And I think that when we, when we view it as God puppeteering someone to sit down and write it out, you could very easily say that it doesn't matter. God didn't even have to use multiple people, right? Because if God is just going to sit down and puppeteer someone to write it out and it's no part of them being poured onto the page, then it should have just been one person who sat down and wrote the whole thing, mm-hmm. right? Because then the parts of the person that well, Daniel, up on didn't the page, one person write it, wasn't it all God's words? Exactly. Exactly my point, right? Is what that does is it doesn't take into account the fact that we do know and we do say even in the church that it was written by multiple people over the course of a thousand or so years, right? And and so we we say state that fact, and then we don't take the next logical step mm-hmm. that that fact then demands of you, right? That it was written by different people in different times, in different places, for different reasons. And understanding that does impact the way you should read it. So anyway, let's keep going. Keep going. Yeah. So they, um, this man right here, uh, his name's Solomon Schechter. He was the professor of Jewish and biblical studies at Cambridge. Uh, was called, you know, he got on a, a, a ship and he crossed the Mediterranean. He goes down to Cairo, Egypt, and he crawls into there and he uh, oversees the organization and selection and publication of all of these texts. They're called the Cairo Geniza texts. Can you and give there's, it's a not just biblical texts that were found in here. Actually, this was the wrong timestamp. This is the thing that I was talking about a second ago. Okay. Um, of this, uh, he was the guy who was called down to organize the Cairo Geniza texts, which were found um, when a synagogue, basement synagogue wall was knocked out for an expansion they realized that it was just a Torah closet that had been bricked up and there were a bunch of scrolls and he was hired to, his life's work was piecing together these scrolls. Um, and this is used as a, by Tim as an example of what happens, uh, how the compiling of the Bible itself took place mm-hmm. is there were all of these texts and um, any given book was a, a compilation and like coalition of all of these different texts that were then that were written at some point and then taken to be um, used as the scriptures. Um, so that actually was the wrong timestamp though. Let me fast forward. Sorry about that. No, I mean, that's it's, fine. It's a, I was going to ask you to just explain what the scene is. So yeah, yeah. So that that was that. Um, I'll start us right there because that gives us a bit of a lead in. Um, but yeah, that I think was a, is a helpful image even to, to have in mind because um, you can kind of imagine that it's, there's this guy sitting at a table with a bunch of scrolls thinking, well, this looks like it's inspired and is a good word that God's people can learn something from. So let's use it 
to, it's like um, it's like when Gandalf in the Fellowship goes to the library, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And exactly like reads that. through the histories of Middle Earth to understand the Ring. Yeah. Right. Yep. Same process. All right. So this is going to be if I got the timestamp right. Um, the example of from Jeremiah um, and Baruch the scribe writing um, writing the book of Jeremiah and then how that kind of has multiple stages. Every night and people are getting robbed in the streets and they're doing nothing about it. And so an Amos or a Jeremiah or a Micah, they are ticked, right? Because they're like, no, the whole point of the covenant laws was that this doesn't happen. This is how everybody lives on planet Earth. The whole point is that this is a people that's different. And so these prophets would preach, they would write poetry, they would write essays, they would write songs. And then at certain points, they, as we're gonna see here, collected all of these materials and weaved them into the books that are before us in the prophets. So, book of Jeremiah, this is excellent. Jeremiah, we're told in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. So he's a human, but he, he, he senses that God is directing him to do something, to say or do something in a unique way. And that is a, that is a true reality of these figures in the Bible. I'm not trying to minimize that fact at all. We're, this is the divine hand here. These are humans sensing an awareness of God's word and reality to direct them to say and to do different things. And that's a part of how the Bible says it came into existence. And this is the human part. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I've spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah till now. Now, Bible nerds, uh, you know, if you read the book of Jeremiah, you know that that date period, so in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, where the book of Jeremiah started, it says in the first sentence of the book, and the reign of Josiah, 25 years. 25 years of preaching and writing and, and speaking and writing essays. So imagine, you know, imagine a, a, a pastor or, you know, a public speaker, 25 years worth of material, right? He's being asked to summarize and condense. And are you with me here? So, right there, there he goes. That's, you know, that's a lot of work. That is an enormous amount of work. And there's Jeremiah sitting at his table, you know, oh my goodness. But then, it's, this is really interesting. He actually doesn't do it himself. Because writing and producing these texts, it's a lot of technical skill. And so what does he do? So, so Jeremiah called Baruch, son of Neriah. And you learn about Baruch in the book of Jeremiah. He's a professional scribe. He makes texts for a living. And while Jeremiah dictated the words that the Lord had spoken to him, Baruch wrote them down on a scroll. Now this is a great story, and this is what happens. So it all gets summarized on the scroll, and then um, Jeremiah is scared to go read the words aloud in the street or in the temple because they're all very critical against the most powerful people in the city. And so he, he has Baruch go do it. <laughs> and then Baruch uh, d delivers it and then people here starts to saying it and the friends of the king hear it and they're like, oh my gosh, stop talking out loud. And so they take it and they go read it to the king. And it's this great scene of the king sits on his throne and he hears the scroll being read to him and he gets so angry 
a, a column of text gets read, and he cuts it off with a knife and throws it in the fire. Another column read, that's what he thinks about the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. And so, Jeremiah took another scroll, <laughs> and he gave it to the scribe, Baruch, son of Uriah, which is Jeremiah dictated. Baruch wrote on it all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, burned in the fire, and many similar words were added to them. What does that mean? <laughs> right? very, so this is, what edition of Jeremiah is this? This is edition two. And edition two has more than edition one had. How much more? What similar word? Are they Jeremiah's words? Another prophet's words? That, just, <laughs> it's maddening, maddeningly ambiguous. Are you with me here? But there you go. The Bible is not trying to hide how it came into existence. It's very public and sometimes very vague, right? Like this could, this could mean lots of different things. And uh, okay, so one sentence on this, though I did part of this in my... Okay, so he goes on um, to describe in a bit more detail um, things about that. He did part of this in his dissertation. He talks about the seal of Baruch that we found. Mm -hmm. Very, very fascinating things. Not exactly, I mean, they're relevant for our discussion, but not um, super important because that right there is a lot of concentrated, really good stuff. Um, I don't know if you have anything, initial thoughts that you want to say. I wrote several things down. The only thing I would say is the fact that there was more written that we don't necessarily know exactly what it was shouldn't scare us. Yeah. Because what is um, what is it? Um, is it John, the end of his gospel? If all if all the works of Jesus were ever written, wouldn't feel you couldn't contain them in all the books. Yep. Okay, so we know we we know quite quite well, even from the differences in the gospels, that there's back to what N.T. Wright said. The only way you write is compilation and order. It's the only way. So why is, again, what makes, I was going to say what makes the Bible different. Now, there are things that make the Bible different, obviously. Yeah. But the, I, just the more we talk about this, the more I think about this, I, I, I can't stop thinking about two two thoughts that keep connecting. Peugeot, when he talks about a past that interpretation. A, a third person omniscient view, necessarily. And the question of those on either on either extreme who would erase either hand i would question something like 
well, how would you want God to communicate to us if you think that's what's hap- what should be happening or what's happening? How else would you want him to do it? Because it kind of seems like we're stuck. Again, uh, it, it, because it doesn't matter. Any medium you take of communication, order and composition and time and place are all part of it. You can't escape it. When you give a speech, what are you worried about? What's my opener? Do I open with jokes? Do I open with something serious? Do I, how am I leading the audience? What are they expecting? How can I drop hints? How can I lead them along without trying to give them everything at once? Keep some tension in there. Again, if you're, if you're writing a, fiction story how do i start what's my opening scene what does that tell me about the world that you're entering what do i show what do i don't what do i not show um you know if you're writing obviously and you can as peterson likes to talk about you can take this very minute okay what's the theme of the book okay how should i chapter that what are the, are the sections within the chapters written in such a way that transition well from chapter to chapter or from section to section? Are my sentences good? Do I have good paragraphs? Do the paragraphs transition well to the other paragraphs? Are my sentences put in proper order? Do I overuse certain words? I asked you earlier about, I sent you a paper I wrote, and I said, well, how did you think about my what? Flow of thought, my order. It's the only way in which we communicate. If you're a filmmaker, what do you show when? And and, and, and even just a frame, what do you show? What's the focal point? Do you have depth? How are you playing with depth of field? That's why there's rules around writing, around there's techniques to give a good speech. There's, there's, there's rules of filmmaking. There's, there's no way around it. There's literally no way around it. You cannot escape it. So why, again, why, if God is really trying to communicate with us, this is a question worth asking. If God is really trying to communicate with us, why would it be any different? Because otherwise we won't understand it. And what's the point of communication that no one understands? There is none. That's the point of communicating, to help someone understand something. Fundamentally, it might be to help someone understand your emotional state, to help someone understand your thoughts, to help argue somebody because you want to convince them of a different way of thinking. Yeah, again, I I just think that this underlying assumption that because 
it's God communicating to us that it's going to be done differently is asinine. It's, if you take five minutes, as I've just done, and think about it, you can't have it any other way and it be actual communication. So I guess I, more than I wanted to say, but there are my thoughts. Yeah. Um, I love how he says, he highlights that, that text um, and the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and said, mm-hmm. take a scroll. Mm-hmm. Take a scroll. The word of the Lord came. So Jeremiah is sensing God's wanting me to do or, something. For a super literalist, he heard him say something to him. Yeah. Sure. He heard him say something to him. Take a scroll and write on it all the words of your past 25-year career. Okay. That leaves a lot of room for Jeremiah to do his thing. Mm -hmm. His thing. Granted, at the direction of God, right? But God's using Jeremiah very obviously here. And Jeremiah is using a professional scribe, right? Mm-hmm. So it's even one step removed from that because Jeremiah is at least in some degree in partnership with another human being who is not hearing from God, is hearing from God too. Mm-hmm. I, what's, what's going on there, right? Is Jeremiah hearing from God and then dictating it to Baruch? Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem as though these words are just things God is dropping in Jeremiah's head. God is referencing mm-hmm. things Jeremiah has done in the past. Mm-hmm. And so then there's yeah, a, and then, a, a, then bit like, of, mm-hmm. a bit of fogginess right there, right? And um, the question is, okay, how is Jeremiah compiling events from the past? Exactly. And there's a whole question about um, with Jeremiah is this, and with Isaiah, is this chronological? Is this organized in some other sense if so what is the flow why are these certain prophecies and stories placed against each other if you listen to more of the Mackey talk um, he talks about how there because we have there are multiple editions right of the scroll Mm -hmm. of jeremiah there's the first edition that gets cut up and burned and then there's the second edition that gets produced and many words many similar words are added to it again Mm -hmm. vagueness in similar What do we mean by similar? Are they similar because Jeremiah also said them? Are they similar because Baruch said them? Are Mm -hmm. they similar because they were the words of another prophet? Are they similar in theme? Are they like, what do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. Um, And we actually in manuscript, and I think he might mention this later, um, but it might've been in a section that I decided to, to not cover, but we have two in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found two different versions of the book of Jeremiah. One is substantially longer. We, we know what words were added to it and we know what words were not. We can yeah. tell, guys, we can tell. And there's some, some of it's in a different order, right? Mm-hmm. We have both editions. This isn't scary. It's not like, oh, shoot, is this the word of God? Which one was really inspired? Which one was really both? inspired? Both. We only have one book of Jeremiah in our Bible. So... Uh, like at least in my Bible, when I pull it off the shelf, I don't know what, like, we're not using both. Granted, yeah. I think, I think 
don't quote me on this, but I think we use the longer one that includes almost everything, if not everything from the shorter one. Um, but then there's the question of order, right? What order we, do we place these things in? And so these multiple editions actually have two textual strands that permeate throughout history. And they made very big splashes in the biblical pond. Mm -hmm. um, One so of my... Go ahead, finish your thought. Yeah, I was just going to say, so to think about the way that this inspiration and writing and compiling, right? Because you have Jeremiah who feels this sense from, from God to do something. And then you have Baruch who's compiling, organizing, and maybe even writing what Jeremiah is telling him to. Even in that, you see that there are multiple ways that this thing gets constructed. Mm -hmm. And so even one edition, but we have two. And so it's not this cookie cutter process but it's also not something that's scary because we know about it and we can we can handle it and and see how these things worked mm -hmm. and i fully believe that the divine hand is very real there jeremiah take the scroll right there's the divine command and then the human hand comes in and does a lot of the other heavy lifting mm -hmm. It's not scary. It's just how it works. Yeah. I'll give a completely secular example. So I used to be a big fan of Gary Vee. And not that I'm not a fan of him anymore, but I used to follow him way more closely than I do. Uh, he's written a few books. Well, then you could ask, has he really written them? Because he's famously talked about how he hates writing. So what he says that he does is at least this was for his newest book i believe he was talking about this he will sit down with a tape recorder and record him saying the book basically and then he has a ghostwriter who puts it on the page for him the book's still published and then he has other clips of funny enough of him I don't know if it's for the book or for something else, for a post. He'll be talking to someone on his team about something and he'll say, explain it like this. And it'll be a long sentence. And then they'll say, or you could just say this and they'll shorten it by 10 words. And then I'll be like, cool, good. Okay. Did he write it? Yeah, his, his idea. At that point, you're kind of like, well, I mean, yeah. But if you, if what you mean by did he write it was he typed it or put pen to paper, the answer is no. Yeah. But they're his words. But shortened by 10 words, right? So yeah. are they his words? Or are they his thoughts? What's the difference? Does it matter? How does it matter? when you try to be super hardcore literal about everything. I think we used this example a couple episodes ago. When you make the Bible concrete, you can't turn the pages. Mm -hmm. It's just a concrete block, right? You make it so rigid, you can't do anything with it. Doesn't make any sense. 
yeah, move and those, off or anything more. No, yeah. I'm just going to say those books yeah. are published by Gary Vaynerchuk. He's a five times New York, five time New York Times bestselling author. Okay, but is he an is he an author? In what sense is he an author? He's Jeremiah saying the words to Baruch, but the book still says Jeremiah. It's his words, it's his sermons. He compiled it, at least at some level, right? Again, we know how all this works over here, and we're okay with it. We still, and then the other thing that's really funny about this, Gary will read his own audiobooks. So there we are again. They're his words. But did he write them? Well, they're his thoughts. And then apparently he signs off on them and says, yeah, that's good enough for me. That's what I meant. Because I'm reading it as an audiobook. Again, we know how it works over here. Let's just use that same thing over here. Because if we're truly trying to communicate, it's not going to be very different. Yeah. Unrealistic expectations. All right, pick it back up. Yeah, go ahead. Um, this should be, give me one second. Um, okay, so we're going to talk about the, the literary theme. So more of the compilation process, but not just of specific books, but of the Old Testament as a whole and how that flows. And I'm a little before my timestamp. That way we lead into it. The book that has a traceable history of human origins and that claims about itself that it's a human and divine word that tells the story of this people, that demands the people who have been saved and rescued live under God's goodness as a new and different kind of people. It tells the story of their failure and it tells the story of what God wants to do uh, with these people and, and with, with his world. Now here's what's really interesting. And, um, Okay, here we go. All right, I just looked at the clock for the first time. So, all right, the, uh, here's what's really interesting, and I, I can't do more, but just note writers, write it down. This is, this is really, really, really fascinating. These three sections of the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, if you look at, at what scholars call the literary themes of these three collections, if you li literally look at the last paragraph of the Torah, you'll find that it concludes with a little line that says, now, dear reader, Moses was really a remarkable prophet. He led God's people. He rescued them from Egypt. And you know, no prophet like Moses has ever, ever come again. So very clearly that's written by somebody other than Moses, right? And, and it's, it's saying that somehow Moses was amazing. Man, wouldn't it be great to have a prophet come who was remarkable and who could save God's people again. And if you then turn to the last sentences of the last book of the prophets, you read a, a line that reads for all intents and purposes like a little editorial edition to the end of the book of Malachi that says, hey, dear reader, remember the Torah from Moses and look forward to the great prophet like Elijah who's going to come again one day and restore God's people to him. And then you read the first lines of the book of Joshua, and God, and God tells Joshua, hey, this, the scriptures that you've inherited from Moses, you need to meditate on them day 
and night and not turn from the right or to the left and you'll have success in all you do if you're guided by the scriptures. And then you go to the first book of the writings, which is Psalm 1, and Psalm 1 opens, many of you read it, you know, in the last few weeks, and it says, dear reader, you know what you should be like? The person who meditates on the scriptures day and night and doesn't turn to the right or to the left, and you'll find success in all that you do. Anybody? This is called editing. <laughs> This is called somebody with a, a literary sophistication and brilliance, who's woven the entire collection of collections together into one book with two messages, two main ideas. First of all, we need a powerful word of God in a new way that's going to restore the hearts of God's covenant people because we're sitting here in exile and we don't know what's going to happen. And in the meantime, as we're waiting for the prophet and the Messiah, we need to bury ourselves in these scriptures and allow the story and allow the terms of the covenant to shape us into new and different kinds of people. Anybody? Okay, so that's our crash course through. All right, so it's very clear, even with, and we missed this in the Protestant canon, right? Mm -hmm. Because the way the Hebrew canon was set up and the way the Protestant canon is set up are different. Right? But if you're reading through the original Hebrew canon as it was laid out, if you stop, if you, you read the end of Torah and, the start, and the, the start of the prophets, you go straight from one section into the other with this editorial edition that flows perfectly. Right? And so it's even obvious to us that it's not just the writers and then the compilers. It's also the people who took the entire work and smashed it together in a particular order for a particular purpose. And that particular purpose is we need a prophet like Moses who can bring God's people into God's family in a powerful radical transformative way mm -hmm. and one of the ways that we can try to become that family of god is to bury ourselves in the hebrew bible do you have that quote he has from the the old testament scholar about what old testament books were considered canon or why they became considered canon Um, I think we're going to cover his section on canon in a second. Okay. Um, and I don't know. I, I think he quotes. Yeah, he, he does quote from a, a, another scholar. I don't know if it's the scholar you're talking about, but it's, it's a good section. Um, but yeah, so we have this literary structure and we can see that it wasn't just writers. It wasn't just compilers. It was also editors that were thinking critically about the way that these books should be put together um, to show how they flow and uh, have an overarching message that's greater than the message of any one section, mm -hmm. right? And so that's why I think scripture overall is so powerful because when you understand one section, it helps illuminate another. And then after you've had that illuminated, you can go to another. And then all of these can then inform the place that you started. And it's because everything is connected because everything has been edited together with a purpose. And I believe, and I think, 
I mean, again, I'm not going to convince anyone who's dead set against this, but I believe that God had a hand in that too. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's, that's all I have to say about that. Yeah. I don't really have much to add. Okay, let me know and find the um, just I'll, I'll just say that the language of a compiler or an editor as if we lose things that god wanted us to hear shouldn't scare us yeah because i don't think that's the case i don't think i don't think those that were truly concerned with telling the story well or communicating well would have cut out things that were unimportant as all of our allusions to inner inner interpersonal relationships shows sure there's things that you can find out about that be like oh that's really cool that's different that's interesting but most of the time those revelations aren't earth shattering yeah or foundation shaking they're enriching mm -hmm. right which is why i use that term so often um and if we can assume that the writers were um inspired if we can assume that the compilers in their compilation and in their additional writing were inspired we can also assume that future editors and redactors were inspired as well um, it's not a difficult jump to make right in fact i think it's the natural leap this is the natural i think step. it's maybe even less of a leap yeah because they already have it yeah they're right? just seeing the value that exists and figuring out how to frame it so that people can receive the most value and i think one of the biggest things one of the biggest flaws that we as christians have when it comes to reading the old testament is the fact that we've completely reshaped it and reorganized it mm -hmm. i think that is a complete mistake um but anyway i'll um we've got i think two more sections sure to cover this one should be on um the old testament canon so i think this is okay. where we'll get to that quote that you're looking for and um, I just want you to hear the words of, uh, of a Hebrew Bible scholar. He's written the definitive historical treatment of the formation of the Hebrew Bible. Um, he's a part of the Christian tradition. He wouldn't self-identify as like, I'm a follower of Jesus. So just hear me. He's like, he would, he's a secular critical historian, right? Who's, you know, grew up in church basically. And so, um, and this is, this is his description and you know, I'm not putting these words in his mouth, and uh, I think this is super fascinating. He says, it is very striking that over a period ranging from the second century BC, so the history, Jewish sources and literature, right after the period of the Hebrew Bible getting unified, right through to the first century CE, so the century in which Jesus lives, lots of Jewish history and events going on there. So many writers of so many divergent groups, and he named some, Palestinian, those living in Jerusalem and Judah, Hellenistic, Jewish communities living down in Egypt and Alexandria, Pharisaic, 
Jews living in the land of Judah that are super, super rigid, <laughs> all right? And they have a very like discerned, uh, well-defined theology. The Essenes, and by here he's referring to uh, the Jewish community that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this is a group, a, a sectarian group. They got essentially ousted of power, ousted out of power in Jerusalem. They think everybody's going to hell in a handbasket and that they're the only true Jewish people. And so they withdrew to the desert and they took their library with them. And we're very thankful that they did that. So that's the Essenes. And then, uh, and then the early Christians, which for the first two generations was a Jewish messianic movement. So what he's saying is, from 300 years of all of this diverse, very diverse Jewish cultures, here's what's happening. They all show such agreement about the canon of the Hebrew Bible. None of these witnesses are concerned with asserting the authority of the books they mention. Rather, they all assume scripture's authority and they go on to debate about their interpretation. So the Qumran community that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls, they think that their community is the fulfillment of the Torah and the prophets and the whole story. In a figure that led the community, they call him the teacher of righteousness. And of course, the, uh, the, the sect of the Nazarenes, right, the earliest followers of Jesus, they believe that the story of the scriptures is fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. And the Pharisees believe that the story of the scriptures will be fulfilled if the people of Israel will just live according to their theology. Right? So you have all of these groups that all disagree. What, they're all, what they don't disagree on is what is the Bible? They quote from it. They debate about it, and these debates uh, assume, assume that authority. So here's his conclusion. He says, it's very clear that these groups don't speak simply for themselves. They represent Judaism as a whole, because they all hate each other, right? <laughs> right? They have very broad representation of Judaism. Any inference that the canon was decided by councils, one group pulling a power play over all the other groups, do you see how ridiculous that conclusion is in light of the evidence? Are you with me? here? Because you have, I'm sure all of these groups would dream and salivate at the opportunity to pull a power play over all of the other groups. But that's precisely what did not happen. The Hebrew Bible isn't that. The role of later councils was not to decide the canon, but rather to confirm decisions about the canon already reached in other ways. There's no evidence in the history of Judaism or the Hebrew Bible about a group of people sitting down and saying, oh, this book's in the Bible, but that one, no, definitely not. Let's take that one out. That's just, that's, it's, that, that never happened. We don't have evidence for that. What we have evidence is for the organic growth of the law, the prophets, and the writings that just by nature of what they were created their own momentum in Jewish history and that they were uh, collected and put together and received and then fought over and debated about <laughs> in Jewish. Are you guys with me here? Yeah. How you doing? Okay, so that. So you wanted the quote about canon, is that what? No, yeah, that's exactly what I was talking about because I, I think it's so helpful to understand that and I've thought about this with other people, and more so about the New Testament canon. Yeah. People seem to not want to really debate the Old Testament canon, mainly because no one really knows about it, even in broader society. Yeah. But as far as as far as that goes, you have the same, funny enough, the same general thing happening with the New Testament. Mm 
Yeah, absolutely. Things get passed around and circulated so much, and by so much of the early church, they get passed around and circulated because they were authoritative and useful. And then, then they just happen to be compiled into a canon. And yeah. yeah, and you have one of my favorite arguments for people who say, oh, well, the canon on the New Testament wasn't wasn't decided until you know, two or three hundred, four hundred years after Jesus. If you read all the early church fathers, yeah. And I'm I think I mentioned this in a former episode, they quote by by before two hundred. There's quotations of every single book of the New Testament. And more. The church fathers. And more. In fact, so. Origen, who I've got on the shelf right there, um, he quotes one of the books that we don't traditionally consider canon that um, also was somewhat skeptical about its authoritative status, depending on the community you're talking to. And when he quotes it, he says, now I understand that some of you guys, and this is a paraphrase, right? But I understand some of you guys don't consider this canon. Okay, that's fine. Just go with me, right? See the point I'm trying to make. And we can talk about that another time later, blah, 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 right? He, so they're aware of these texts that are on the fringe of being authoritative, mm-hmm. but they don't mention that about any of the gospels. They don't mention that about the writings of Paul that we have in the new Testament, right? That's, I think I want to say it was the shepherd of Hermas, which mm-hmm. we don't consider Canon. I actually want to read it. I've heard it's really, really good. Um, but again, like that's not the fringes very rarely. I mean, I think it was revelation was the one that made it into the Canon by the skin of its teeth and at a council. Right. But even that had very much an authoritative use among the early church fathers um, to the the degree that I am aware. Mm -hmm. Um, And so again, with the new Testament, and I think you'll get into this next week. Yeah. It emerges from the general group consensus. My point in bringing that example of the new Testament is he's pointing out the same exact thing in the old Testament. All these, and I think his point's great. All these groups would have loved to say, Oh no, this is definitively what it is. But the, the deeper point is that's not what they're arguing. They're arguing about how to interpret what's being read, you know? So, and, and the only group that there might be a, um, that might not be true of would be the Sadducees who I think only took Torah as the authority. Um, and that I think is actually for more political reasons than anything else. Um, but the Sadducees might be the only group that you could exclude there. All of the other groups see the entire New Testament or Old Testament as it stands currently as being authoritative. And all of the disagreements are centered around how to interpret it, not whether or not it is the foundation. Mm -hmm. So again, this comes back to not inspiration or inerrancy. It comes back to interpretation and authority. authority. Right. It's, It's authority. And the authority had already been established. <clears throat> Anything else on that? I would only remind us 
if you think we're harping too much on inerrancy, just remember the two passages we read last week. Or was it the week before? The one from, um, what is it? Um, Samuel and yeah. Chronicles? Yep. yep. Was it God or was it Satan? Yep. Well, which one, man? Because that seems pretty important. And I won't but say back to the an, point. What? Uh, and I won't even say that's an error necessarily. No. But I think if you're looking at the story as it exists in those books, the the way it's portrayed makes sense, right? And that kind of messes with our but modern that, rationalist conceptions, right. which is part but of this the point is, we're trying to make. But this is something someone could easily point to and say, well, there's contradictions. Yeah. Well, if God's word is perfect and infallible, it can't have contradictions. That's an error. Again, back to my point, it all depends on how you define error, which is why I think the debate is useless. But even in that example, our debate is not whether one book or the other is authoritative. Our debate is about what does the difference mean, or maybe yeah. it should be. And I'll, I'll take it a step further. Maybe Interpretation. We even, maybe we shouldn't even focus on what the difference is. Now, I, I do think focusing and talking about what the difference is is good. But I also think maybe we should just read Samuel, read Kings, read Chronicles as they stand and see what points those books are making. Mm -hmm. Yes, we can talk about the conversations they have with each other. And I think those would be great. I think they are great. But let's also let each book stand on its own two feet and teach us something as itself. Thank you so much for listening to that first part episode on the Old Testament canon. Next week, I'm going to post the episode where Daniel and I move on to have a discussion about the textual strains that we have from the of the Old Testament canon, the Masoretic, Septuagint, and the Stuttgartensia are the major three that get discussed here by Tim. And then I bring up a short piece from my lecture by Heiser about how Deuteronomy 32 is different in its strains of the Septuagint and then what was found um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so... And that's very, it's an important theological difference here that's going on as well. So that's what makes the discussion um, a little bit tense. But I use it to uh, illuminate some things about how we can go about uh, these differences wisely and figuring out how to pick which one is a better, uh, a better choice than for translation. And then me and Daniel get into a discussion about translation. So you can look forward to that episode next week. Again, thank you guys very much for listening. Leave a comment. Let me know what you think. You can email me. Give us a rate, review, subscribe, like, all that good stuff. Let YouTube know that you're enjoying what we're doing here. And we will see you in the next one.